pick up sounds. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven <laughs> sounds. Those were eleven fantastic sounds. Thank you, Tom. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Chris Toomey, and this week Steph's taking a quick break, but in her absence, I'm joined by a special guest, Dave Rupert. I was so excited to get the chance to chat with Dave as he is someone whose work I've followed for almost a decade, and I've been consistently impressed with the quality and quantity of work he shares with the world. As a quick introduction, Dave is the lead developer at Paravel, a design shop based in Austin, which he helped found in 2007. Since 2012, with over 400 episodes released, he's the co-host of the fantastic Shop Talk show along with Chris Coyer. Dave is the creator of the Accessibility Project, a community-driven effort to make digital accessibility easier and, frankly, one of the best resources on such a critical topic, that of accessibility. Uh, And finally, Dave is a prolific blogger, speaker, tinkerer, and maker on the web. And perhaps most impressive to me, in addition to the quantity of work that he produces, he consistently finds a constructive, thoughtful tone to share different ideas with the world. If you're not already following his work, I highly recommend subscribing to his blog and following him on Twitter, where he is Davitron5000. And I'll, of course, have links to all of his work in the show notes. But without further ado, let's dive into my conversation with Dave Rupert. Well, welcome to the bike shed. Thanks for having me. This is fun, and I absolutely love the the name of your podcast. I'm quite jealous. So. Oh well, thank you very much. I inherited it, so uh, I don't get to claim too much on it, but I'm I'm happy to have carried the torch. And yeah, it's it's a big day. We're uh, merging two podcasts on the internet here. Uh, and actually, I, I want to sort of start with that as a sort of core theme. One of the things that I'm continually impressed by in your work is both the quantity of what you're producing. You have uh, almost 200 blog posts that you've put out, 400 episodes of Shop Talk Show. You have a handful of other side podcasts that you do from time to time. And it seems like that producing and sharing on the internet is something that's very important to you. Uh, And you even give suggestions. You have a blog post about how to start a podcast for other folks and uh, your particular thoughts around how you think about blogging. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, because you really do seem to put out an incredible amount of work and share so much of what you learn along the way. So I'm interested in how you frame that and how, frankly, you find the time to do it. Yeah, well, I think what attracts me to the web and why like I even started making websites was that like thrill of self-publishing and, you know, whether it's for your dumb garage band or your church group or uh whatever, it's so cool that you can just make something and put it out there. Uh, you know, it starts out tens of people have it or 10 only people have it and then then it can kind of get bigger or not, but I think that's so cool that the the democratization of content publishing, you can do it. If you want to write a book, you can write a whole entire book and put it online. You could pay hire an editor to go clean up your book and you can put it online and you publish something. And it's maybe a little different than going through a traditional publishing house, but is it, you know, the, the rules totally changed. You know, it used to be, you had to get, I don't know, some very fancy publisher to, to publish your book, but you know, O'Reilly or something like that. But nowadays gumption and desire can, can go a long way. So no longer do you need to seek approval for that to those ends. I've noticed that you're a, a real champion of RSS and podcasts and those sort of democratized platforms. But uh, are you worried at all that those are less and less in favor and less and less common and folks are perhaps leveraging them less? Yeah, I mean, I think 
the death of Google Reader, however many years ago, I think it was 2014 or something like that. Yeah, I think that was a, a bummer for the web. And, and not that people were really checking their RSS a whole bunch. I'm sure there were some metric-driven decisions made about that. But, you know, social media came around, and it's so much instant gratification. I can tweet whatever dumb idea I have, and then a thousand people, Starheart favorite that up, and suddenly I have, like, dopamine just filling my whole body. And back to that thrill of publishing, that's it. But it's on the very micro scale, and you find it – I'm personally finding it very – uh, fleeting or vapid or whatever. Um, it is interesting and funny when something takes off or whatever, but you know, the, the things like RSS and even podcasts, which are entirely built on the RSS platform, that's back to that self-publishing thing. You can just publish your thing. Somebody can pick it up somewhere else. We don't even have to talk about it. I didn't have to broadcast it, blast you, email you and nothing like you just <laughs> subscribe to it it's done. We had a transaction and we didn't even have to talk about it. That's kind of fun to me. And it's on your own time. You don't have to like keep up with that river of Twitter. The just, I don't know, the extra doom of Twitter, you know, you can, you can eject yourself from the doom and take things at your own pace. And that's kind of nice. So I'm hopeful for a resurgence of RSS and blogging in general, but it's hard just because the gratification is so low and the barrier to entry is still kind of high. I mean, you know, you can spin up a WordPress or a blogger pretty easily, but it's not totally obvious. Like, oh, you also get an RSS feed when you sign up for a WordPress account. You know, that's not obvious. So it's still maybe nerd tech. I think so. Yeah. Although I assume most platforms do just produce it at this point. Although, like you said, with Google Reader going down years ago, they're definitely like RSS still works. It's the really simple syndication. So it's uh, pretty simple to get up and running and then to consume. But I will say I'm a huge fan of it because of the fact that it allows me to pull and to choose when I'm consuming content and how I want to interact with it. And I know you've mentioned your Sundays are for RSS, uh, which I really enjoy that theme that you occasionally will tweet out. But yeah, Twitter and other platforms or in general, just walled gardens of content where like Spotify is now taking over some of the podcasts and Facebook is owning some of the content that would, in theory, have been perhaps on a bespoke indie blog. I don't know if that's actually a realistic expectation, but I share your dream of the open access, the democratized web, and everybody can just share the weird things that they're working on. And I think you really do present an example of what that can look like when done well and when done purposefully, but still with enough I don't know, humor and levity in it. So yeah, I, I really appreciate the approach that you take there. Yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how money changes things, you know, uh, like with Spotify and I mean, Apple has their first kind of walled garden podcast. I think now, uh, I don't know the name of it, but you know, Spotify has been bootstrapping some podcasts. I, I think it all started sort of with serials, big explosion. That was just a huge unexpected event, but it was just such an amazing moment for podcasts. I'm curious now that money's in play and, and content silos want to attract users, just like Apple TV has exclusives or Netflix has exclusives or PlayStation has exclusives. You know, now that big money is kind of in the mix, what happens? Uh, it'll be interesting to see, but you can also just put up a podcast where you and your friend drink a six pack of beer in one sitting and record 30 episodes. I do that. So you can do that. I like that it, there's both ends of that spectrum. You know, there's like this very high quality professionally produced content. Then also like three people playing Dungeons and Dragons with their dad. You know, that's, <laughs> that's also content I like. 
That really is the promise of the internet lived out. Shifting ever so slightly, one of the things that, again, I highlighted about your work is, at least to me, you seem to be pretty prolific, particularly around blogging. And that is something that I've personally been trying to do more of lately, but I uh, I struggle with it. It is There's this voice in my head that is constantly telling me, like, no, that's not good enough. Nobody cares. All of those, you know, I think relatively normal things. But I've noticed that you seem to be able to just produce on a relatively regular clip. And I'm wondering... Are those things that you've worked through? Have you had to battle with those voices and just tell them to quiet down and you're going to go share some weird stuff on the internet? Or is there a more pointed approach that you have there? Yeah, I think the best advice was I've ever got was from Jeremy Keith, who's also a very prolific blogger. When, when I'm like, who's my inspiration? It's usually like Jeremy or like Chris Coyer too is very good at it. But he, one thing Jeremy said is, is treat your blog as your drafts folder. And I, I just was like, Ooh, interesting because, you know, you build up this, like, I have to write this magnum opus. This is going to be the most important thing I've ever written in my whole life, you know? And that's not what blogging is for. It can be, I guess you can put that level of care and effort into it, but really it's like you need to decide who your blog is for and what you want it to do. If you want to be like this valued expert, then yeah, you're going to have to put more time into it. But for me, my blog is a lot about getting thoughts out of my brain, you know, just <laughs> let me just get thoughts out of my brain. It's been that since high school. I mean, in high school, I had a paper zine we made, you know, like we like printed and pasted paper zines, had a blog from like 2000 to 2007. It's now dead, but like it was, you know, just like getting thoughts out there. And now very much with tech stuff, it's just like, you know, I have all these ideas. I'm stringing together connections. I think we as humans string together connections, right? That's like our whole, our brain is just programmed to do that. And a blog is a great place to make those connections. Hey, I read this thing from so-and-so, and then I ha saw this in the news, and now I'm going to talk about them together. That's something I end up doing a lot, but that's just, it's mostly just to make my brain stop saying, <laughs> keeping me up at night, you know, keeping the night brain at bay. But really it's, it's what do you want it to be? And for me, it's kind of a tool for me just to get these ideas out because otherwise I'll just overthink them or something like that. So I don't think there's magic to it. And, and there's one post I have about blogging, but it's like, if you feel like it, do it. If you don't, just don't. Like, <laughs> like literally don't. I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons to blog, like career, professional, you know, reasons. I, I think it does things like builds your profile or whatever, or even like companies might know of you because you blogged about some obscure Python tool or something like that. But I also think it's just kind of like, here's how I think about a problem. I think that's like almost like showing your work. I think that's valuable from a career standpoint, what you think about things, what you're passionate about that comes across in a blog too. But, you know, but again, if, if that's not for you, don't do it. Or maybe your blog is just a collection of super weird designs that you made in CSS. That's cool too. Like do that, make it yours. That's where... Your blog does not have to look like anyone else's blog. It doesn't have to function. It doesn't have to read, you know, like anyone else's. It can just be yours. So one guy I follow on RSS, I was like, I don't know what I'm getting into. I know him from tech, but then it's just like poetry. Oh, interesting. He got you in the door with tech, but then you got poetry after the fact. Yeah. And so now I'm reading this guy's blog and it's just kind of this like really honest poetry and, you know, that can go up and down, but it's just kind of interesting that's just what's coming out of this person. And so that's great. 
it can be anything. <laughs> that definitely makes sense to me. And particularly what you're highlighting of, it doesn't need to be thought leader, big think pieces, or the grand magnum opus on a topic. It can just be sort of an experience report of, I ran into a problem, I thought about a thing, here's some solutions I entertained. And I'm definitely trying to push more of my thinking around it in that direction. Uh, although something else that you mentioned there caught my attention, you were talking about there are all these disparate things that you're seeing to different streams of information, and then you you see a connection across them. And some of your what you're sharing is just that sort of connection making. But I'm wondering, I've, I've seen a lot of folks talking lately about Rome or uh, Notion or various other note-taking tools and note-taking as a thing. And I personally, I used to take a ton of notes back in the day. I think I had an Evernote account and I captured everything in the world and then I never did anything with it and then I just got sad about it. So I gave up. But I've started to reconsider that as a sort of pointed way to make those connections. And I'm wondering if you have any more formal note-taking or sort of drafting process that you use. Yeah. I, I mean, I used to do a thing where, you know, my blog's in Jekyll. So it's a static site generator built in Ruby. It feels old. a little. It works great, but it feels a little old right now. But I used to keep everything in a drafts folder in there, a bunch of markdown files. And before that, I was actually doing, I would just try out a markdown app for a week. I'd write like three blog posts, save them somewhere. Don't remember where because of how Apple's like file save thing worked, iCloud. And then it just disappeared. <laughs> um, I eventually found them, but they were no good. I, so I put everything in a drafts folder. But then lo and behold, my drafts folder had like 15,000 words in my drafts folder across 84 different posts or something like that. So I just was like, this is not good for me. Like I can't make sense of like a list of 84 files. So I actually started using Notion and built like a Kanban in Notion of like the post status. And I have like seven or eight different post statuses like outlined, started, mostly done, ready, like for published, published, and then a Deadpool too. Cause I just, some ideas, you know, like you go and they should just, they can go to a Deadpool. They can just be done. They don't have to actually go out. Just, you just got them out of your head. So that's great. So I have different statuses, different tags, just kind of like, oh, I'm feeling in an accessibility mood. I want to write about that. Or, oh, did I have any ideas about accessibility? Like I can go check my posts. I use a similar tag setup in a like a links, you know, you can like do a link clipper in Notion, which is pretty cool. So you just click it, a thing in your browser and it'll save the link just like an Instapaper or whatever. But then you can go through and like tag it. Like I'm writing about accessibility. Oh, what was that link about accessibility? Oh, cool. It's already in my notion. So I can just reference it or at include it or whatever. So I do that a lot. And then I also like track all my side projects in notion and all the tasks of, with those. Like I have one big task database table and then my projects can like reference the table. So I can even like when I revisit a side project or whatever, like eight months down the line, I can just say like, Oh, what was I working on? Oh, okay. Yeah. I need to like hook up some database or something. So I use the heck out of notion just again, kind of like a get your brain outside of your brain sort of thing. Like yep. that's pretty handy. Yeah. I'm, I'm currently in Trello in a similar format, but the, the slightly more structured form of notion is sort of calling to me with the exception that then it's a new tool for me to play with instead of actually writing things. So I, I battle back and forth with those ideas. But um, yeah, definitely interesting to hear the, the semi-structured way that you're approaching the various different writing and projects and things. And it, again, does explain some of your prolificness. So 
Well, it's just, it's really just like having it, right? Like I had an idea, I'm just going to put it down. And, but you know, at some point too, like you have all these ideas or all these blog post ideas or whatever, it becomes a bottleneck. So like now the next phase of my whole life, I feel like right now is how do you treat bottlenecks to where they're not overwhelming? Or I am, I guess I am the bottleneck. How do I not be overwhelmed by this list of 84 posts in my blogging notion and, you know, or my list of whatever 50 books I want to read. How do I not feel overwhelmed by that? So I think that's sort of the, my next phase of life is like how, <laughs> dealing with backlogs and figuring all that out. And that's a phase that you've identified, but yet to really dive into, it sounds like you've collected all of the things and yeah, I'm, I'm good at collecting or like farting out ideas, but then how do you find what's worthwhile to work on? That's sort of the next step. So and I've got ideas and giving a talk about it now, but it's just, it's kind of just how do you visualize and prioritize all, all of your ideas? And I feel like tools like Notion and over other tools, even Jira or something like that, help you really kind of visualize what problems you need to be solving or tasks you should be approaching. Definitely makes sense there. Uh, I may have to give Notion another poke now. Now we're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor. One of the greatest challenges we all face is taking in all the information that's available and knowing where to focus. It's the same problem with hiring. With Indeed, you have access to the largest pool of talent and can hire the right people fast. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job posts, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Bike Shed. That's all one word, B-I-K-E-S-H-E-D. This is the best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash Bike Shed. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through December 31st. Thank you again to Indeed for sponsoring today's episode. Shifting topics a little bit, one of the themes that seems to come up in a lot of your writing and, and tweeting and things that you're focusing on is around the web platform and both simultaneously embracing the web platform and trying to use as much of what's available there and lean into it because of the reasons that that it is sort of a cohesive platform, but at the same time worrying about, like recently you wrote about the value of browser diversity and being a little bit worried about the state of things. So I'm wondering, what is your your current thoughts on the web as a platform and what are you excited about and what are you a little bit concerned about? Uh, so I love the web and you know I work every day on it. I write HTML every single day of my life in some format. In many ways, again, back to that thrill of self-publishing, that is what HTML enables you to do in uh, like a structured format. And so I think with HTML and CSS and JavaScript, these are things I think about a lot or performance and accessibility. These are things I think about a lot in the context of my life, uh, like, or just my side projects, the, the context of my job, like 
what I'm building for my company or for clients or what I'm consulting on, or even my podcast shop talk show is all about web design and development. So like it's critical for me to think about these things. And and I realize I occupy kind of a pundit space, you know, <laughs> like a, I'm the Fox news of web development. No, but mm, that wouldn't uh, be my summary, but sure. <laughs> yeah, no, but anyway, I realize I occupy maybe a pundit space just like, say what's on your mind and, and people tell you you're wrong. But I, I try not to just think uncritically about things. I'm not just like Chrome is bad privacy. Duh. Like uh, that's, I try to like think about it a little bit more. And so like this browser diversity post, it was really like a question from my friend, Mike Taylor, who was at Mozilla at the time. He kind of just brought it up right around the time edge was going to Chromium. He just was like, you know, what, what if Mozilla switched to Chrome today, like Chromium today, like what would that change for browser diversity? What's the value of browser diversity? And, you know, I thought about it for a good long year. I just was like, what is the value? You know, cause in my brain, it's like monoculture, bad, now what you know so so i had to dig into the the idea more and i think the value i i came up with was more like around the system of checks and balances if we have any form of government on the web at all you know it's the committees or the whatever but the fact that not every browser has to implement your feature so therefore like it slows the pace of the web which can be frustrating but that is the only control or check and balance we have on the the web. So, so it's just ideas around that, but what do I hope for the web? That's, I think my big thing about the web is, I don't know if you've seen those web aim posts about how the web is like 98.1% inaccessible. Uh, have you seen that? The web aim million report? I have not. That is a high number though. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> so they crawled like the Alexa top million websites through like BigQuery and they just went through each one and ran an automated test, which doesn't catch all the accessibility errors whatsoever. It just catches like 20% of the testable errors in accessibility land, like for WCAG WCAG violations. So they ran the test in like the first year it was 97.8% of all 1 million sites had errors of some kind. And then the next year it went up. So it's like 98.1% or something. I'm maybe misquoting the numbers exactly. But so the sites have become more inaccessible since this report came out. And then even beyond that, like sites that use ARIA, like which is the hey, browser, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to do the accessibility tool. The sites that use ARIA are more inaccessible. And, and a lot of sites that use frameworks like JavaScript frameworks and things like that, or even jQuery are more inaccessible than sites that don't. And so you have to ask yourself, like, what, what are we building here and what do we need? Because I, I don't know that the current tool set fixes it. So, So my hope is that the web could kind of rally together and solve inclusivity but you know do you see that as a, a failing in the platform itself or in the ways that we're approaching it i don't know i think it could be everything um <laughs> I, I think one thing that happens is this job doesn't come with a manual right so you just show up you didn't even need to go to school but you watched a tutorial on youtube and now there's like a, a thousand developer. blogs on the internet there's plenty <laughs> yeah yeah I there's mean, not there's an official manual yeah there's not a manual so no one tells you like oh by the way sites actually have to be accessible and to be frank like i didn't learn 
anything about accessibility till very far into my career. I mean, I knew like use HTML headings are cool, you know, <laughs> P tags are great. I knew those rules, but I didn't really understand contrast or uh, have my head wrapped around like tabbing through controls and tabs and things like that. So I think, you know, a lot of people don't understand that. Like, like it's not clear that that stuff is not just good, but should be required of your site and maybe going forward is legally required. You know what I mean? So I don't think it's clear to people when you start web developing that you ha- you're actually developing things for everybody. Mm. Is it the platform's fault? I, I think some, I mean, Aria is great. Like it solves the problem, right? It exposes things to the assistive technology in a way the assistive technology understands. That is good. But if sites that use Aria are more error prone, then I don't know. I mean, in user experience land, if if users are failing at using your thing you designed, that's like a user experience problem that's your fault, you know, when, when I think of it that way. So maybe it's not just the dumb kids using it wrong. It's maybe a user experience problem or author experience. I don't know. Yeah, it could be a tooling and a platform or a availability of the information, anything like that. Uh, and I, I certainly appreciate your not wanting to throw the kids these days under the bus um, because I think that's all too easy of a place to go to. But I do worry that historically, I feel like sites were built more just out of HTML and CSS. And it feels like in a lot of cases, we might be going out of our way to make sites inaccessible, not intentionally, but the nature of how we're building sites has become more complex. There's more layers and indirection. We're building more custom UI controls and things like that. And it's so much easier in those cases to get off the well-trodden path that is available on the platform because now you're rebuilding from the ground up and suddenly you have buttons that are actually divs that have on-click handlers and don't actually you know, respond to anything else or any assistive device. And I don't know what to do about that, but I'm a little worried personally. Yeah, no, I mean, everything cool usually has an accessibility or performance or a security problem. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, like, yeah, I mean, it's harsh, but it seems true. Yeah. And so I think for me and like what I'm kind of rallying for fully realizing, like, I may not even be making websites by the time they show up, but I think we need new element primitives like a tabs element or an accordion element or something like that, just so like, hey, we can solve these problems in HTML once and for all, and hopefully not create too many more problems, although that will happen. You know, some the second somebody has a tabs thing, they're like, great, I made a, I don't know, <laughs> iOS cover flow, you know, like, and it's like, oh, shoot, like, that's not what we wanted from that, you know, so you create something, and then somebody's going to take it and say, cool, I'm going to make a naughty thing. <laughs> hey, hey, I'm going to do a bad with it. And or so, I'm going to do something novel and fancy. But as you said, that often can lead in complicated directions. Yeah. I mean, the classic example is like these checkbox hacks you see on CodePen or whatever. It's like, you don't even need JavaScript. Check this. The menu button is actually a checkbox, you know? It's like, that's an accessibility. No, no. Like, cause as cool as it is and cool that you didn't have to use JavaScript, guess what? Like that makes no sense to a screen reader, like checkbox menu unchecked. Like that doesn't mean anything to anybody. So I I don't know. I, I hope that going forward, like accessibility can become a priority 
I think we're in a weird situation where things are heading towards Chrome land, but then you have WebKit kind of only on iOS, which is a very dominant platform here in America. So does that situation on the iPhone need to change like WebKit only? Because that browser is sort of lagging behind right now. And I think there's some features that people want that aren't coming from Apple and Apple's very clandestine about their roadmap. So what can we do, you know? So this episode of the Bike Shed is sponsored by Datadog, a cloud scale monitoring platform that provides comprehensive visibility into cloud, hybrid and multi-cloud environments with over 400 integrations. With Datadog's OOTB, customizable dashboards, and algorithmic alerts, your engineering teams can adopt an agile workflow as all teams can work out of the same monitoring platform and monitor cloud migrations in real time. Datadog breaks down the silos within an organization's teams and removes blind spots that could cause potential downtime. Give it a try with a free 14-day trial and receive a Datadog t-shirt after installing the agent. Visit datadog.com slash thebikeshed. That's all one word, T-H-E-B-I-K-E-S-H-E-D. What can we do? Well, actually, to, to switch it around, you are the creator of the accessibility project. So I feel like you're probably someone well suited to uh, perhaps give pointers. So if there are folks out there who hear that accessibility is a thing that they should be considering, but it's not something that they've thought much about, what would be your uh, recommended approach to sort of starting to explore that world and be a little more purposeful about inclusivity and accessibility in, in the sites that they're designing? So the accessibility project was actually born out of my frustration about not knowing anything. So I just was like, here's a list of a hundred things. And that list is still in a GitHub issue that I'm not sure about. So here we go. That's like a fantastic origin story there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and you know, got some help like launching it over a weekend and then it was up and then made some mistakes. Like launch day, there was like an article that was just legit wrong and got made fun of on Twitter by accessibility people. And I said, okay, cool. It's gone. Like, (laughs) welcome to get like, you just, it just disappeared now. And that's my thing. Like a lot of accessibility stuff is either academic in nature, like produced by a, a college or university. A lot of things are only through accessibility consultancies, which are great. But like, if you don't know anything, you don't know who DeQ is, or you don't know who Nobility is, or, or Tenon, you don't know these companies. So you know, you have no idea if what's true is true. Kind of tried to pull this into a thing where A, the language would be very user-friendly and and easy, kind of shooting for like an eighth grade reading level in a two-minute read was sort of the original goal. And then the next thing would be like always up to date. That was sort of like using Git to always have the best practices because a lot of times you search for accessibility stuff and you get bad information because that article is from 20 years ago. And so... There, you didn't know that, but that's true. You don't use access keys anymore. And so then the next thing for me, it was like non judgmental, having actually been under the fires of some people in the accessibility community, whether they know they did that or not, whatever, um, uh, having been roasted before. I don't think that helps people learn. You know, if the goal is to like, get people to build accessible experiences. I don't think telling people they're an idiot on Twitter is the way to do it, you know? And I should say like, these people are great. A lot of accessibility people are just passionate because they they have a purpose for their job. And then they're eternally frustrated because 98% of all websites are broken, you know? That's frustrating. And so I don't fault them for their frustration or anger, but it is just kind of like, 
can we make this better? This is sort of the hope, you know, can we, what can we do? Let's make this better. And so the accessibility project lives on now as a sort of ongoing source of that information. Um, it has a wonderful checklist, which I actually hadn't seen before, but I just ran into recently. Uh, and that seems to provide a, a nice high level summary uh, and also a very accessible interface in and of itself. I was impressed by uh, some of the details and summary usage there to expand and collapse things and all that fun stuff. Yeah. So like, uh, under new management, um, I kind of cycled off um, just through work and stuff. But Eric Bailey, Scott O'Hara, and uh, Tatiana Mack just did the redesign of it as well. So there's a lot of people and there's a lot more, but those people were involved kind of in sort of making it what it currently is. And um, it's it's really good. And it's people who care about accessibility and are contributing together to kind of, I guess, distill the, the whole ocean of the the accessibility landscape down into like, here's a checklist you can do. And here's like articles linking to things you maybe need to know about or the specific criteria you need to look up and, and stuff like that. And so I heard somebody say, you can read the WCAG documentation, like success criterion. But if you print it out, uh, it's 1,200 pieces of paper. Wow. So when you're a developer in a two-week sprint cycle and <laughs> you have to fix an accessibility bug, do you have time to read 1,200 pages? Absolutely not, right? So like for me, the, the be easy requirement is so important just because developers are impatient and and we just want like the answer now we want the stack overflow of accessibility and and that's hard to provide because accessibility is very nuanced but you know i, I think it's just try to like boil down a general understanding of the practice and hopefully take out some of the nuance because i think there's maybe too much in <laughs> but but uh, if we can take out some of the nuance and, and just be like here here's a good starting point that would be the best I, that's what i would like to do yeah, well, I certainly appreciate the the work that you and everyone else in the project has done because it really is, I think, an underfocused aspect of our work. And it's so easy to get wrong, especially these days with all the complexity of how we're building sites. And so having a, a resource like that that allows us to understand more of it better. And again, that checklist is absolutely fantastic. So I will be revisiting that on the regular. But shifting around, I think this is sort of a related idea, but a number of years back, I think it was 2015, if my uh, reading of the internet serves, but you switched over to Windows as a sort of experiment for yourself. And I'm guessing it was one in trying to understand what the world sort of looked like from that and what to, what's the experience on websites. But have you stuck with that to this day? And, and how's that going? I am on Windows right this very minute. I'm looking at my Bing Rewards account. <laughs> I So I'm on Windows. It started back in 2015. Uh, so I do Shop Talk show with Chris Coyer from CSS Tricks. It's a question and answer podcast. And we would get questions in like, you know, should I get a Mac or a PC for web development? And for the longest time, it was like, lol, just get a Mac, you know, whatever. But our audience was from places like India or Indonesia where buying a Mac is very expensive like months and months of pay, you know, at a, at a average salary or, or something like that. And I think, you know, maybe that's changed, like international pricing models have, have adjusted or something, but it was kind of like dickish advice to be like, Hey, go buy a $3,000 laptop. Cause that's what the cool kids use, you know, when you can get a windows laptop for like $500 us, you know? So I, I sort of just was like, you know, I, I'm not satisfied with this answer. Looking at our traffic, it's like 50-50 Mac and Windows and just through like web traffic. And I was just like, oh, that's different to me. So 
uh, I said, I'm just going to bite the bullet and see what Windows is like. Can you even do web development on Windows? And it was tough. You can, of course. And if you're in the .NET framework world, uh, like five years ago, yes, you totally could. But it was hard. Like ThoughtBot here is a rail shop or historically has done some real stuff, but like we dabbled in rails. Yep. A couple few, right. Um, yeah. <laughs> like couldn't even get rails going. Noko Geary just took a nosedive and exploded. Ruby is particularly so, rough on windows. That's definitely true. Ruby's rough on windows. Yeah. And I've talked to like core team members about it and they're, they're kind of like, do you have to be on windows? You know, but, but I think, Going back to the web, right? Like being a fan of the web, like a $3,000 computer shouldn't be your buy-in point for the web. You know, it, it should be, the web should work everywhere and it should be good everywhere. And it should be, you could, you should be able to build the web anywhere without some suite of Microsoft tools like .NET framework or something like that. You can use that stuff, of course, but I'm saying you should be able to use it without it. And, and I think I was just generally frustrated and struggling. You know, I had like a, a video chat with Scott Hanselman, who's kind of windows famous and he's generally uh, famous, isn't he generally famous? Yeah. Just, I mean, he, and he's been doing a podcast for like 800 episodes or something like that. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but I, you know, so I'm like, wow, I'm like talking to Scott Hanselman and lo and behold, we're just like debugging like console errors from Ruby, like windows Ruby. And it was painful. And then they invited me out to build that next year just as like a, Hey, thank you. Cause a lot of the blog posts I was writing, were getting escalated up the chain to Microsoft people kind of movers or shaker people. It was being like brought up like, Hey, check this out. And lo and behold, I don't know when they started working on it or whatever, but then they announced WSL, which is Windows Subsystem for Linux. But but you can now run Linux mostly natively. It's in like a tiny VM, like a micro VM now. But you can run Linux on Windows 10, and it just interacts with your system very fluidly. And I think had that not shown up, I would have abandoned ship and gone back to Mac. <laughs> How long ago was that when they introduced that? They introduced it four years ago, but for two years, it was kind of bad. Like it had Mm -hmm. compat issues, you know, like, like for the first year file watching didn't work. Right. Which is kind of like, well, guess what you do in in web development a lot is watch files, you know? And then after that was solved, it became very clear, like for the next two years, like and once you saw it, you couldn't unsee it, but, but it was slow, like mm. orders of magnitude slower than like a native system. And so operations like file watching or NPM installing, which guess what you do a lot in web development, that was like prohibitively slow. Like I, I remember like being on a laptop, like on battery and, you know, windows adjust the performance of your CPU based on whether you're on battery or on or plugged in. And like, I tried to do create react app and I just gave up because, <laughs> because I was like, I'm going to play with create react app on the couch. Why not? That sounds fun. And I just gave up because it took too long to install. There's so, so much to unpack in that little anecdote right there. I mean, yeah, it, it was just like, I just gave up. But once you saw that it was slow, it was really hard to unsee because it was slow. And recently WSL2 rolled out to every computer. I think it was like December-ish of last year, rolled out to every computer. And that made it orders of magnitude faster. I think I, for like compiling my blog, it went from like seven seconds to 0.5 seconds. So like a 13 X improvement or something like that. So 
pretty impressive all around from from that team. So, and I, I don't think they're stopping. I think the WSL subsystem thing has been very positive for developer sentiment for Microsoft. So I think they're going to keep doing it. But I think that solved my worries. Sometimes I think about going back to Mac, but then I'm just like, oh no, I'm fine. So. Especially, I mean, if you've made it this far, and and frankly, looking at sort of the timelines of things when Microsoft started shifting and, you know, embracing Node more and acquiring GitHub not too long ago, and it's just, it feels like a very, very different company than, say, when you when you opted into this adventure in 2015. So, uh, if you've made it this far, I would say, why not? No, yeah. I mean, Microsoft under Satya Nadella versus Balmer are two different things. And it's really interesting, like, not to get to Windows fanboy or whatever. But Balmer, if you think about it this way, like for Bill Gates and Steve Balmer, Windows was their baby. That's how they made their money. That's, you know, what made them who they are. And, and Balmer specifically was enterprise Windows, right? So like, he just was like, that's where the money is. That's what we're doing. That's all we care about. You know, he said developers, 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 but he was really speaking about a certain kind of developers <laughs> with certain kinds of enterprise licensing or whatever. But Satya's whole thing, he comes from Azure. And so that's like just cloud, right? And so his whole thing is like, I want your thing to work on my thing. And so his, his, almost his whole tech strategy is kind of built around that. Just like, I want your Linux apps or your Ruby on Rails to work on my Windows computer. So I'm going to figure out how to do that. So I think that's just the cool new Microsoft in that regard. And so the cool new Microsoft. My company, Paravel, we did their 2012 homepage redesign and their homepage now is not that different from what it was back then. And so like I, I had like positive sentiment towards Microsoft kind of before that, or I was kind of rooting for them. But Windows 8 was a bit of a disaster. That was about the time we worked with them. <laughs> but then it was like Windows 10, hey, that's good. I'll try that. So I think Windows 10 and Satya's governing really just changed it all. So. Well, again, I, I definitely appreciate the sort of purposeful point of view that you take where I've worked on countless teams where it's a sea of MacBooks all running Chrome, testing the app, and we're going to get a singular experience when we do that. But it turns out the users of the site that we're building have much greater variety in many Windows machines and Firefox and Safari and Edge and even Internet Explorer, uh, although less and less, thankfully, these days. But um, you actually uh, you know, put some skin in the game and actually switch over and battle through it a little bit. So again, another thing that I sincerely appreciate the work that you've done on that front yeah I, I used edge for five years when it was very bad but but it felt good it felt fast but i'd go to meetups and be like so people would be like anyone use edge or make an edge joke or something it's like oh i i do i actually am an edge user so or or it gives you a chance like when people are just talking like oh and then we're gonna do the you know it's like well actually i'm on edge i don't have that so like <laughs> like what do you do you know like forcing conversations and so and i could use my situation in shop talk to kind of at least just remind people to build for other browsers so that was something i could do and you know a lot of people would dm me and be like does this even work you know and so it's like i'm free qa i guess but at least like the sentiment was there like hey i'm just gonna try to make this work so we're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is quickly becoming my go-to performance monitoring tool for Rails apps. I love opening it up to see a prioritized list of issues that I can quickly knock out before end users ever see them. With the weekly digest and alerts, I can rest easy knowing that Scout will let me know if issues arise. 
Ultimately, Scout APM empowers developers to spend more time building great products by minimizing the effort required to identify and resolve performance issues. Scout's developer-centric approach quickly pinpoints N plus one queries, memory bloat, and other abnormalities. Their tracing logic saves me a ton of time by tying bottlenecks back to the line of code causing the issue. Give Scout a try for free today, and you'll have the performance insights you've been dreaming of within four minutes. Sign up through scoutapm.com slash bikeshed, and Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. So give it a try, and thanks again to Scout for sponsoring this episode of The Bike Shed. I'd love to shift around and and, uh, touch on one more topic before we wrap up here, and that is the world of design systems. Uh, You, as far as I can tell, sort of exist at a very interesting intersection point between development and design and where sort of the rubber hits the road on both of those. And you've talked a little bit lately about design systems. You have a post that I, I really enjoyed, the five key milestones in the life of a design system. And I'm wondering what your sort of current set of thoughts around it are, because you've also talked about how design systems can be somewhat limiting, or do they take away the autonomy in an organization? So I'm wondering where you're at on design systems and you know, how you approach them at this point. You know, I think my ideas are constantly evolving, even like this week or the, like, the last few weeks. I work on design systems. I've worked on them since like 2012, just exclusively. That's what, well, we, we go in to work with companies and then they describe all their problems and it's like, well, it actually sounds like a design system might help you because it sounds like you're doing an, a terrible amount of rework in order to produce a substandard product. Does that make sense? Like duplicate effort isn't super bad, but if it just keeps producing worse and worse facsimiles <laughs> like that's a <laughs> like a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy like that's when it becomes just problematic and and that's where you want to rein things in and and have some cohesion i think as i've done that for you know 7 8 odd years now i think what i'm starting to realize is it's a people problem right and organizations are made of people that shouldn't be surprising. I think for the longest time, responsive design changed how we work with people. You kind of needed a tighter loop between design and development. And same with the design system. Like if you don't have tight loop between design and development, it's just not going to work. I don't think, but I think in, more in general, it's about people in autonomy. You know, developers are fickle people. They will <laughs> refactor sure a whole are. app yeah. just because something new came out. You know, they're like, oh, I don't know. This version two came out. We're upgrading, you know, and or we kind of just like, oh, I heard this was better on Hacker News. That Surprise, we're rewriting it in Go, you know, like we don't like to, but we also have a propensity to that, I feel like. And similar to like some designers are like, oh, surprise, we're not using Sketch anymore. We're using Figma this week or whatever. It can be. And not just developers. So I think there's an issue of autonomy and design systems and getting adoption throughout an organization. And I think that's the hardest part of a design system. I, I think like anyone these days can fork a bootstrap or build a set of components in React or Vue or even just HTML. But getting people to use that is tough. And I think you hit obstacles or by obstacles, I mean people and organizations who are just like, well, I'm not going to use that or whatever, because I feel limited by that or something like that. And I think it all comes down to like autonomy. Like they feel like that hinders their options and, and people don't like to be constrained. And that's understandable. I don't like to feel constrained, but when you're making the thing, you're like, this is the best thing ever. Why isn't, why aren't those dummies using it? And then if you're a consumer, you're like, I installed your thing and it just didn't work. I'll be honest. I sort of love to be constrained. 
I've had a few experiences with design systems, mostly on the consumer side, because I, I work primarily in the development world. And I really, really want to have that great experience where there's just this little toolkit of UI pieces that I can snap together and have a consistent usable experience that has good fidelity to the brand and, and all of those sort of things, but requires less fiddling on my part and less bespoke you know, writing of CSS and HTML. The experiences I've had always sort of run into some wall. And mm-hmm. I find that interesting. This feels like a thing that we should be doing and should go well. And yet it does feel like it's so hard to, to get that right and to give the right amount of customization, but also constrain things down. And, and to find that sort of optimization point is, like you said, probably sort of a human problem. And those are harder to solve than tech problems. But yeah, it's it's kind of a Goldilocks problem. Just either the design system did too little and it was useless, right? It's just, well, cool. You sent me variables. I'll use it, I guess, you know, and I actually think design tokens and uh, which is what I'm referencing there are actually pretty powerful. Like that's a gateway towards some sort of standardization, you know, like your border radiuses are in fonts and colors and stuff are all homogenous, you know, but I think, you know, either it'll do too little or it does too much. And therefore it's like too complex to even understand. And then no one uses it or references the documentation because it's just too much. Like I can't read again, back to the, like reading all of WCAG, I can't read a whole 1200 page book just to learn how to use the button. So I'm going to make my own button. Sorry. Like, you know, (laughs) and, and I think that's like the problem design systems have is how do you fit that Goldilocks kind of experience or, or provide that, you know, like, this is the just the right amount. Uh, and like, how do you like allow creativity in the design system, but also provide helpfulness? You know, I know utility class stuff is very popular because it like allows creativity. You know, it's like, well, if you don't see what you want, just like staple these utilities together and you can build your own thing. And I think that's really helpful. But sometimes the utility thing goes way overboard, right? And it's like, here you go. It's a hundred kilobyte CSS file. And then you have to like go through it and rip everything out and stuff like that. And so like you have this whole tool chain now that you have to manage just to use the CSS. And so it's very minimal in that it just offers like flexibility, but then like the tooling behind it is, is very prescriptive, you know, and, and I think Jeremy Keith has talked about prescriptive versus descriptive design systems. And, and that's very interesting territory too. Like, how do you write if it's prescriptive and you're just like, you have to use this, you have to do this here. We made this use this or, or if it's descriptive, like, you know, the buttons should be green and the button should have a rounded radius of three pixels. You know, like that's, that's descriptive. You're describing what it should be like. You're not prescribing a solution. So there's a middle ground there too. And how do you get to it and preserve employee autonomy? I, I think whether you're, I think I said it in a post, but Robin Rendell has this concept of a hyper object, like a design system is a hyper object. It's thing, something people work on and it impacts everything. And your positivity or negativity towards a design system is probably based on your experience with the hyper object, whether you're beholden to it or contributing to it. And so I don't know how it gets solved. <laughs> 
it seems like an important space and a, and a worthwhile one to continue experimenting in. And I, I guess uh, a more pointed question in this space to sort of round things out is, what is your preferred mechanism for actually delivering a design system or for sort of constructing and, and providing it? Is it a CSS sheet that has a bunch of classes that can be used? Is it view or react components that can then be consumed? Is it just a variable set that then gets pulled into like SAS or less? Or is it a combination you know, for me, like this sounds weird, but it's what can my designers use is maybe the minimum viable product or what can my designers use that also benefits me. <laughs> so sure. me selfishly, because if, if a designer just hands me whatever sketch files that actually doesn't help me on windows, <laughs> it's, it's anti-help on windows, <laughs> but if they hand me Figma files, that's a little bit better, but a lot of the technology choices I make are, are what can my coworkers build and contribute to? And, and I'm in a situation where like my specific contract ended with a client, but my coworkers are still working on the design system I made for the client or whatever. They're able to build page. They, they have stopped using Photoshop. If somebody asked them, Hey, what would this page look like with the, this thing? They're like, I'll just build you the page. I know the HTML enough, like I can munge the CSS enough, like it makes sense. For me, that's the success point. Like design is enabled to create things that developers can then use a little better. You know, dream world is like web components and NPM. And and then I don't really care if you work in React and Vue. I, again, I want my designers to be able to stitch together things. And if designers have to like fire up whatever... 50,000 node modules just to use the design system, that seems like a failure to me too. So it's good. Like there's great things out there like storybook and stuff like that. But I care about what comes out of the machine, not just the little widgets in the machine. I want to see the whole thing built, you know? Yeah. I think it's a particularly hard question to answer. And I, I like the sort of heuristic that you're giving there of can the designers work in the system and also the developers, obviously, but can the designers use it as sort of a primary mechanism for exploration and building out new pages and things like that, or are they pushed into a secondary tool? And that uh, that becomes a really interesting lens for the system. Yeah, well, with that, Dave, thank you so much for joining us. I think this is a perfect place to wrap up. But if folks wanted to uh, keep up with more of what you're doing on the internet, where's the best places to find you? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, Davatron5000, D-A-V-A-T-R-O-N 5000. You can follow me on the blog, DaveRupert.com. If you want to donate to the Accessibility Project, there's an open collective that you can do. So I think just look for A11Y Project on the open collective. So they have 10 donors right now, so it'd be cool to boost that to 20. So let's see if we can get it over over the hump there. That'd be cool. Awesome. Well, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. The show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes as it really helps other folks find the show. If you have feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bikeshed on Twitter, and I'm at Chris Toomey, and our missing host, Steph, is at S. Vicari, or you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.